0: Half Price Horror Hello and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Ash vs. Evil Dead Season 3, Episodes 6-10 through from 2018. And at this point, I think we've talked over the production details and cast as much as we feasibly can in the previous five installments I've done on the series for this podcast. Nothing's really changed about the the behind-the-scenes elements between the front half of the season and the back half. I've mentioned all the highlights of the actors' careers. Again, it's Bruce Campbell as Ash, Ray Santiago as Pablo, Dana DiLorenzo as Kelly, Lucy Lawless as Ruby, Ariel Carver-O'Neill as Ash's daughter Brandy, and Lindsay Ferris as Dalton. Yes, he's dead, but that's not as big an obstacle to appearing on this series as you might think. And honestly... At this point, trying to even sum up the whole wild, chaotic, hilarious mess of the series to date is a little too much for me. If you don't know how we got to where we're at, I recommend listening to the preceding five episodes I did on the show before you start with this one, because there's just so much that happened to bring us to this particular place in the story, including at least one full-on time travel reset button, that I really can't describe at all. For now, let's just remind you that Ash is wanted for questioning for kidnapping Ruby's demon baby. Ruby is setting into motion an elaborate plan for the coming apocalypse that involves killing Ash and transferring his status as the prophesied savior of humanity to her demon baby. Brandy is gradually coming to terms with the weirdness that comes with being the daughter of a drunken lecherous boor who also happens to be the chosen one. Pablo is now a brujo especial with unspecified but apparently important mystical powers, and Kelly has a magical dagger that can kill Ruby, and a plan to use it on her because she's really into the idea of solving all her problems with cathartic violence. Oh, and Dalton is dead, having achieved his plot function of exposition dumping a whole catalog of information about an ancient order known as the Knights of Sumeria that exists to fight the evils of the Necronomicon, and a renegade member of that order, Kaya, who helped Ruby betray her fellow Dark Ones and was trapped within the pages of the Unholy Book for her pains. Got all that? Good, because seriously, it took me something like four hours to explain it all the first time, and there's a lot more to cover before we finally reach the finish line. Starting with Episode 6, Tales from the Rift. Premiere date, April 1st, 2018, written by Aaron Lamb. As always, alongside the writer's room for the show, television is a very collaborative medium, with initial scripts frequently reshaped beat by beat in order to keep them tonally consistent and ensure they flow together properly and directed by Regan Hall. We've already talked about Lamb. he's a story editor and producer on this season of the show, but Regan Hall is new to the series, and apart from this one episode, his only credit is a 2012 sports movie called Fast Girls. It looks like he mostly makes his living directing commercials, and only occasionally makes forays into long-form work. I'm certainly not going to denigrate him for that, George Romero did a lot of commercials, and so did both Ridley Scott and his brother Tony, and they all did some very stylish work. Sometimes creativity is where you find it. After the usual pre-episode recaps, we open in the attic of Ruby's house on Old Mill Road, where her demonic child has entered the pupil stage. He's now a writhing shape inside a goopy cocoon that's so clearly and self-evidently made out of latex that it wouldn't look out of place in the late 80s Nightmare on Elm Street sequel. And Ruby's clearly excited for him to finish his transformation so she can get on with her plan to kill Ash and gain control over the one being in the world who can destroy the Dark Ones. But when she hears a noise from another room, she goes to check it out and is promptly shot in the chest by Kelly three times sending her flying backwards and through the railing and down the stairs because kelly's got a very simple plan she's going to use mortal weapons to damage ruby's body to the point where the immortal half demon can't defend herself then finish her off with the kandarian dagger and as she shoots ruby straight through the eye and we go into the title card it almost looks like it might work We come out of the title card to Ruby crawling away and there's a wonderful moment as the camera goes straight through the hole in her head when she drags herself towards it and disappears from view. But unfortunately for Kelly, Ruby simply heals too fast and fights too hard for even four good shotgun blasts to take her down. She's back on her feet within minutes, using super strength to hurl Kelly across the room like a ragdoll, but Kelly's too emotionally invested in her revenge to back down now. And I love that this is the culmination of three seasons of surprisingly subtle character development for Kelly. From almost the moment we saw her, she's been using violence as a coping method for all the grief she felt over her parents' death at the hands of the Deadites. She's decided that it's easier to be perpetually angry than to be sad or frightened, and at every step of the way her response to the increasing supernatural weirdness of hanging out with Ash has been mindless rage. Watching this scene, you realize that in hindsight, it's always been obvious she was heading for a crash, but it's not until you get here that you fully understand they've been building to this confrontation all series long. Kelly can't beat Ruby. She's going to lose this fight. But her emotional damage means she can't stop herself from battling to the death. Meanwhile, back at the Williams residence, Ash and Brandy get home and lie low. The two of them bond over driving the Delta and making Pop-Tarts. Ash has apparently never had them toasted before, and he's amazed by Brandy's cooking talents. As Brandy tries to absorb the notion that the high school counselor she's known for two years is actually an immortal half-demon. But when she goes to clean up, Ash hears a knock at the door and discovers that Dalton called for reinforcements before his death in the form of four new Knights of Sumeria. Zoe, played by Amelia Burns, and... Look, let's not worry too much about the other three. You probably don't want to get too attached to them anyway. It'll only make you sad when you hear me talk about the rest of the episode. Zoe and her red shirts explain that they believe the scribbled runes written by the long dead knight on the wall of Ash's cellar at the hardware store might be the key to destroying the Dark Ones, the Deadites, and all the evils of the Necronomicon once and for all. The Knight, who we're told was named Gary, used the Lost Pages to create a rift to the Deadlands, another world where Ruby and Kaya exiled the Dark Ones to in an act of betrayal that left them imprisoned and powerless, and the Knights believe they can bring Ash through that rift to combat evil on its home turf in an endless but glorious struggle to save humanity. Because if the Dark Ones get back out, they'll go to war with Ruby to get back the Necronomicon, and the Earth as we know it is going to be a casualty in their battle. Back at the private House, Kelly's fight is quickly taking a turn for the worse. Ruby casually breaks both her nose and her ankle, then throws her into a wall so hard she loses her grip on the Kandarian dagger, and it goes skittering across the floor into the next room. Ruby retrieves it, which pretty much ends Kelly's chances of hurting her, and even the grenade she throws around the corner to explode point-blank at Ruby's feet doesn't do much more than inconvenience her. Ruby's body parts simply crawl back across the room and knit themselves together. She is, to all intents and purposes, unstoppable. And meanwhile, Pablo, who is last seen looking for Ash, has come back to the trailer to get out his uncle's old occult paraphernalia so he can make use of it. Brandy finds him, having been out of the room when Ash took off with a group of random idiots to the hardware store, and Pablo's new mystically intuition tells him that something terrible is about to happen to her father. He tells Brandy to lock up the house and stay safe, and goes to find and save his hefec. But his arrival actually precipitates what will turn out to be the impending apocalypse. Because when he shows up, Pablo's drawn to the runes on the cellar wall, and he begins chanting in a dead language almost before he knows it. That opens a swirling vortex on the wall nearby, the titular rift, and the knights are all delighted to discover they can in fact go into the Deadlands and confront the Dark Ones on their own terms. Over at the private house, Ruby offers Kelly the chance to walk away, and I love the way Lucy Lawless plays. This whole battle is more exasperated than angry, as though she's a brand new pet owner whose puppy won't stop digging its teeth into her pants cuff. But Kelly's too angry to care about her own life. Ruby is by now a symbol of her parents' death, her shattered existence, everything that was taken from her, and she'd rather die fighting than live with the shame of having failed her friends and family. She limps across the room, determined to go down, swinging. Back in the cellar of the hardware store, Ash isn't too thrilled about the notion of an endless battle against evil. He suggests they maybe should try something something through as a little test. And Marcus, the only other knight with any actual dialogue, he's played by Colin Moy, offers to do reconnaissance. He steps through the portal and is flung back mere seconds later, his eyes glassy and his expression suspiciously blank. And at the private house, Kelly finally dies, stabbed by the Kandarian dagger in a moment of genuine pathos. It's funny, but it's at times like these that you notice that the show can pull off real emotion almost effortlessly if it wants to. The layers of irony and emotional distance in most of the scenes are entirely intentional, but you only really notice when there's a moment like this when the light fades from Kelly's eyes and she lets out a final little choking cough before lying still in a pool of her own blood. Even knowing that this is a show that doesn't play death entirely straight, it's still touching. One of the other knights, Peter, helps Marcus to his feet, and he's repaid for his kindness by having his arm fused together with Marcus's at the wrist as the demonic entity that was Marcus simply absorbs him whole, with the comment, We knights stick together, right? The third knight, who doesn't even get the dignity of a name, is similarly absorbed, and with Zoe taken out of the fight by a spray of black bile, that just leaves Ash to take care of business. Luckily, they don't call him the Chosen One for nothing, and he pulls out his trusty chainsaw and uses it to dispatch the creature. The knights of Sumeria are dropping like flies, but that's not the worst thing that's going to happen. Because with Kelly dead by the Kandarian dagger, that leaves her soulless body as the perfect vessel for Kaya. The sorceress is pulled into Kelly's form, and Ruby tasks her with driving Brandy over the edge and convincing her to kill her father. I'll admit, this is one thing I felt needed a bit more exposition. There's a fine line between rapidly accelerating the pace of events and rushing, and I think this might be an example of the latter. It's never explained why Brandy has to be the person who kills the prophesied one as opposed to letting Ruby's demon spawn do it. A few more lines to fill in the gaps here and explain that it has to be Ash's own bloodline who ends his life for magic reasons, and that the power would pass on to demon Ash and not Brandy wouldn't have gone amiss. Ash tells Zoe to protect the lost pages, tells Pablo to seal the rift for good, and goes home to check on his daughter. She's there with what looks like Kelly, toasting her dad a fresh batch of Pop-Tarts, and I love the way Ash responds to want one with, does the Pope shit in the woods? Which is just a great malapropism if I ever heard one, and everything seems to be back to normal. But we know that things are only going to get worse. But it's still surprising just how fast that happens in episode 7, Twist and Shout. Premiere date April 8th, 2018, written by Caitlin Mears and directed by Mark Beasley. We talked about both of these individuals in the front half of Season 3, so let's get straight into the action. Turns out there's a high school dance, and Brandy's going to use it as an opportunity to talk to Ruby one more time and get proof of what Ash is saying. Ash thinks it's a terrible idea, mainly because it is, but Kelly backs Brandy up, mainly because she's secretly evil and wants to help Ruby twist Brandy into a patricidal stooge for their final plan to destroy the Dark Ones and dot 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 step three profit. I think Ruby's endgame is another minor casualty of the rushed pace of the final five episodes. Yes, she's obviously doing something terrible, and yes, it involves stealing Ash's prophesied status and using it for her own ends, but we never find out what she actually wants. Ash agrees to let Brandy go to the dance so long as he and Kelly stay close to her. Meanwhile, Ruby's kid has emerged from his cocoon, and wouldn't you know it, he's yet another evil doppelganger of Ash himself. I kind of feel like we're at the point of slightly diminishing returns for this stunt after Army of Darkness, the end of Season 1, and arguably the end of Season 2, where the ash double was squished with a frying pan before it could grow to full size. But I will say that Bruce Campbell plays this one with an extra touch of creepy weirdness that helps a lot. When he saws off his own right hand to make himself fully resemble the original shortly after the title card drops, the way he says, make it stop, while still sawing relentlessly is genuinely unsettling. Back at the hardware store, a window opens to the deadlands on the other side of the rift, and Kelly appears inside it. She tells Pablo that she's dead and she's sorry she screwed everything up, and Ray Santiago gives the scene some real heart with his anguished reaction. He decides to go find Ash and break the news to him. At the dance, which is themed a midwinter night's dream, but I assume that's poetic license because if it was really midwinter in Michigan, there'd be about a foot of snow on the ground, Brandy and Kelly go inside, while Ash decides to sneak his way in through the back because there's a police presence at the school, and the cops are still interested in asking him questions about the kid they found in his trunk which is a problem because Demon Ash is already inside the school, and he's happy to go on a wild killing spree to make human ash look bad. He starts off with a couple of kids who snuck off to smoke the ancient weed they found hidden behind a fire alarm, wink wink, chainsawing them to bits in a scene that feels like it fell straight out of an 80s slasher, and I mean that in all the best ways. In Among the Main Crowd, Ruby is working her full manipulation act, calling for a sincere moment of silence for Candy Barr and Rachel Manning, while Kelly suggests that maybe they've got this all wrong after all. The three of them go to Ruby's office, where she tells Brandy that the real truth is she's not a demon at all. Ash is. And if he's not stopped, he's going to do something terrible to her and all of her friends. Human Ash stumbles upon the corpses of his demonic alter-ego's victims, and not long after that, on Demon Ash himself. Demon Ash isn't interested in a confrontation, though. He wants to sow chaos and discord in order to make Human Ash look like a demon, and he quickly slips away, leaving Ash to be discovered by the cops with a couple of kids who've been chainsawed to pieces. It's kind of hard to claim, that wasn't me, that was my evil twin who also has a chainsaw for a hand, and so Ash is forced to run for it. Incidentally, I feel like there's a pretty clear sign that the writers were a little tired of this gimmick, too, by the way Ash greets his other self with another dumbass double. That's a message from Fred if I ever heard one. Also, regular users of Tumblr will be pleased to know that the trail of blood on the floor is full-on color theory in action. And if you don't get that joke, know your meme can help. Brandy goes looking for her dad, hoping to get some refutation of Ruby's insinuations but she finds him murdering teens over dress code violations and unhinging his jaw to twice its normal length and she takes off running. Kelly, meanwhile, helps Ash get away from the cop who's arresting him and steers him into finding Brandy, hoping to engineer the confrontation that will cause Brandy to murder Ash and turn Demon Ash into the new savior of humanity, one entirely under Ruby's control. Which, again, step three profits. It all comes down to a big showdown in the high school gym, where Demon Ash goes wild on the teens with his chainsaw while Brandy and Ruby hide under the tables and Ruby gives Brandy the Kandarian Dagger. For, you know, self-defense. Demon Ash then slips out of the room just before Human Ash comes in, making it look like he's the one responsible for it all, and his protests don't mean a thing in the face of the evidence of Brandy's own eyes especially when Ruby lunges stomach-first onto Ash's chainsaw in order to make him look like the monster she claims him to be. And, oh god, the glee on Lucy Lawless's face as she plunges onto the blade is genuinely wonderful. But Ruby's plan falls apart when Pablo arrives. He recognizes that Kelly is possessed, both because of his natural brujo talents and because she doesn't remember that they kissed a couple episodes ago. And although he can't bring himself to kill her, it nonetheless alerts him to the looming crisis. He goes to find Ash, but bumps into the wrong one and winds up being chased through the entire school. Straight into the gym. So as Brandy is struggling to reconcile the lovingly goofy father she's known for seven episodes with the monster she saw earlier at the dance, suddenly the doppelganger Ash has been talking about comes running into the room and wrecking all of Ruby's plans. Human Ash shoots him twice in the head, decapitating him and ending the entire fake savior scheme once and for all in a way that's almost anticlimactic. Although honestly, I like the idea that no, we don't need another big Ash vs. Ash fight. This guy's the C-team of evil twins. Ruby is, to say the least, not happy. She gets back up, having only been faking her death at Ash's hands, obviously, and tries to throw the Kandarian dagger at Ash as a last-ditch attempt at petty vengeance, now that her schemes have been foiled and she's almost certain to face death at the hands of the Dark One she was preparing to destroy. But Brandy gets in the way of the knife, sagging into Ash's arms as it goes straight into her back and she dies instantly. And then wakes up. In the strange netherworld of the Deadlands, in a twisted mirror of the high school gym she was in just a moment ago, a shadowy demon rises out of the floor, and she realizes the only thing she can do here is run. The credits roll, and the Evil Dead franchise joins the incredibly long list of horror media to use Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult for ironic effect. I can think of at least two we've covered on this podcast alone. Clearly a lesson to aspiring musicians out there, Write spooky shit and the royalties will come a pouring in. And that rock classic launches us into Episode 8, Rifting Apart. Premiere date April 15th, 2018, written by Brian Hill and directed by Mark Beasley. Again, we already discussed the careers of both men back in the front half of this season, so we don't need to do it again here, and I'm kind of glad because we're rolling fast into the finale and I don't want to stop for credits. There's a real propulsive energy to the back half of Season 3, even by the standards of the series itself. Seasons 1 and 2 always had those reflective, nostalgic moments when Ash got to the cabin, but this one is all about the adrenaline, and there's no stopping that momentum now. We begin almost exactly where we left off, with police and coroners taking the bodies of the teens killed by Demon Ash out of the high school as Ash hides out in a classroom from the inevitable manhunt. Even if there's been so much time fuckery that he's now a beloved icon of Elk Grove, it's kind of hard to argue that Ash wouldn't be prime suspect in a series of gory chainsaw murders. But there's only one death that matters to him. His daughter Brandy, who he genuinely bonded with in their brief time together, and who he promised to protect. He's shaken, and the news that Kelly's body is now host to some undead entity shakes him even further. But when Pablo mentions that he saw Kelly's soul on the other side of the rift, it reminds him that he once saw a spirit cross over from the Deadlands to the material world, Professor Nobi, all the way back in Evil Dead 2. He suggests opening the rift and going inside, then getting their spirits out and putting them back in their bodies to resurrect them. Which seems risky and stupid, and possibly may in fact be the cause of the apocalypse we see unfolding over the next couple of episodes, but it does feel like the sort of thing Ash would try. The two of them steal Brandy's body and the coroner's van along with it, as well as a second body that just happens to be inside its own body bag waiting for some third act consequences, and head for the hardware store. Brandy also heads to the hardware store, but in her case it's a bizarre shadowy nightmare version of the hardware store that, well, there's no nice way to say it. It looks like they ripped it off straight from Stranger Things. It's a low-light, mist and fog version of the real world where everything's covered with a layer of dust and ash, that's little A-ash, not big A-ash, and none of the electronics work, and if you were to turn a corner and find Will, Dustin, Lucas, Mike, and Eleven coming the other way, you wouldn't be a bit surprised. But what Brandy finds are the kids from the dance, running and hiding and being pursued by an otherworldly creature that rises up out of the ground as if it's teleporting from point to point. The creature is made out of shadow, with no face and long gangly arms and a lower half that's made of black smoke from the torso down. And although it never attacks directly, it can summon up pits of darkness beneath its victims that sprout an endless supply of hands to drag them down into some other, even worse hell. Brandy sees it consume another victim and she makes a run for it. And wouldn't you know it, she runs into Dalton just as the title card drops. Talk about gone but not forgotten. He and Kelly are working together, and they found a relatively safe space in the shadow version of the town bar, but they warn her that the geography of the Deadlands aren't like that of the real world, and if she goes through a door, there's no guarantee she'll come out on the other side in the place she expects to. Case in point, they went into the bar through the entrance to the local movie theater. Ash and Pablo grab the body bag, and they almost certainly got the right one because it's not like the other body could come to life demonically possessed and switch places with Brandy, and they bring her down to the cellar. Pablo, who's coming into his own as a brujo, realizes that traveling physically through the rift opens you up to demonic possession like poor old Marcus from before. But you can go through as a spirit by dying at the hands of something touched with deadite energy, and then you can come back through the rift and re-inhabit your old self. So to save Brandy, Ash literally has to die trying. He and Pablo stab him through the heart with the Kandarian dagger, and he wakes up in the deadlands as well. His hand is restored, his chainsaw is gone, and he immediately goes looking for his daughter. After a few trips through the weird post-death geography of the netherworld, he winds up in the sperm bank when he tries to leave the cellar, Ash enters the bar where he's reunited with Kelly, Dalton, and Brandy. He explains the plan to them, such as it is, they need to get back to the cellar of the hardware store so they can be at the site where the rift opens when it opens so Pablo can give them a way back through. There is a small problem with that, though. Out in the real world, the body in the body bag turns out to be, surprise, surprise, not Brandy, but another victim from the dance turned into a deadite. Pablo fights with her upstairs, and it's kind of interesting to realize that this is the first time he's really gone one-on-one with a deadite without Kelly or Ash there to save the day. But luckily, a fight in a hardware store gives him plenty of useful weapons to fight evil, and he eventually clamps her head into the paint shaker and vibrates her skull apart. Excellent. Excellent death. Meanwhile in the Deadlands, the group winds up stuck outside, and Dalton does what he does best and sacrifices himself to distract the smoke monster. Ash sees the Delta and decides to use that to get them to the hardware store, but it doesn't start and soon the entire car is being dragged down into the next layer of hell. Things look bleak, but Ash is the chosen one after all. And even down here, that counts for something. The Delta erupts from the ground, engine revving, and he blows straight through the smoke monster and pulls up right outside the store. The three of them go downstairs, and although there's some expertly intercut tension, we know that Ash isn't going to stay dead going into the season finale. Pablo opens the rift and brings Ash and Brandy back into their own bodies, but Kelly's human form is being occupied by someone else she can't go through. Ash wakes up in the cellar and gets Brandy out of the back of the coroner's van where she returned to life, and makes plans to go after Ruby and Kaia, who are in the middle of panicking because all their schemes revolved around having an ersatz version of Ash who could take on the Dark Ones when they inevitably rose, and without him, the Dark Ones will overpower them and destroy them for their old betrayals which is, I'll admit, another place where clarity was sacrificed for alacrity. I really wanted a confrontation between Ruby and her fellow Dark Ones where we'd learn exactly what that old betrayal was all about and why Ruby exiled them. But sadly, that was put off for another season, and now we may never know. But Caius found Zoe, the last surviving knight of Sumeria, at least as far as we know, and there are a few things Ruby can do with human blood, human skin, and the Necronomicon. And we'll find out what those are in Episode 9, Judgment Day. Premiere date April 22nd, 2018, written and directed by Rick Jacobson. And since he directed the last two season finales, you know we've talked about him before. He picks up the action for the penultimate episode with Zoe handcuffed to a chair, her blood being drained into jars and bottles so that Ruby can use it to create a new page of the Necronomicon with spells to hide her presence from her old enemies. All she needs now is some skin, and oh hey, Zoe has that, too. It's a genuinely awful and unsettling scene, but it's also got a horrifyingly bleak comedy to it, as yet again, the Knights of Sumeria prove to be absolutely useless in the task they've spent 700 years preparing for. Kaya gouges her eyes out to finish her off as the title card drops. Ash and Pablo bring Brandy back to the Williams house, which is amusingly still soaked in Brock's blood, and although Pablo tries to dissuade Ash from going after Ruby, he's suddenly stricken by a bizarre vision where he sees through the eyes of the Necronomicon itself. With this additional mystic sight, he realizes that Kelly couldn't enter her own body because it already has a tenant, and Ash decides to at least go get Kelly and evict Kaia from her body. He sends Pablo back to the hardware store to be ready with a resurrection ritual, and leaves Brandy his boomstick for self-defense. But when Pablo comes back to the cellar, the rift is already open, and he can't close it. And this, I think, is a point where the rapid pace and lack of exposition works well, Do we know why the Rift is open now? Was it something Ruby did as part of her plan to kill the Dark Ones that went wrong? Or something that Ash and the gang did by fucking with the boundaries between life and death? Or have the Dark Ones just been trying to force their way out all along and it's finally worked? We do not have answers to any of those questions, but it doesn't matter because it's happening anyway and everyone is just going to have to suck it up and deal with it. The Dark Ones emerge from the Rift, and honestly I'm weirdly disappointed that there are only three of them. I thought it was going to be a gang at least the size of the Supreme Court. They grab the lost pages of the Necronomicon from Pablo, although they don't seem to be able to otherwise perceive him, and leave to find Ruby. And as everyone converges on the house on Old Mill Road for a final confrontation, out in the rest of the world, people begin to spontaneously transform into deadites seemingly at random. It's the end of the world, basically as Brandy discovers for herself when the unseen force breaks down the front door of the Williams' house, and she has to flee first up the stairs and then out of her Aunt Cheryl's window to escape it. She locks herself in the tool shed in a sequence that has plenty of nods to old-school Sam Raimi, but she loses the gun in her flight, and her cell phone first gets a call from her dead mother and then transforms into a demon that bites the tip of her thumb off. She flings it away and gets her very own baptism by fire as she manages to take the entity down with Brock's snowblower, after a hallucination that teases the idea of her sawing off her own hand to be more like Daddy. Ruby adds the new page to the Necronomicon, but it's way too late. The Dark Ones know her location and so does Ash. He takes Kaia hostage to force Ruby to release her body, but it goes south when Zoe goes full dead-eyed and attacks him. He tears her arm off, and Ruby attacks him directly to force him to reveal the location of the rift he planned to use to bring Kelly back. She tears his chainsaw off his wrist and crushes it with her bare hands in a moment that really and truly feels like the end of an era. But while they're distracted kicking the crap out of Ash, the Dark Ones arrive and tear Kaia's soul out of Kelly's body. They put it back in her own form, resurrecting her, but it's only so they can enact their own punishments. She's instantly and completely incinerated by them within a matter of seconds. Then they go after Ruby, dragging her spirit out of her body and imprisoning it before crushing her crumbled form into powder. Ash uses the distraction to grab Kelly and the Necronomicon and leave. Pablo finds Brandy and the two of them go looking for Ash right up until he uses the Necronomicon like a walkie-talkie to let Pablo know he's going back to the hardware store. Unfortunately, downtown Elk Grove is in chaos, and Ash winds up crashing through the front of the now-abandoned bar and knocking himself out. The Dark Ones arrive, taking back the Necronomicon and reuniting it with its lost pages for the first time in centuries, then teleport away. But not before summoning their most powerful minion, the one all the others are mere shadows and reflections of. The 60-foot-tall Kandar. The Destroyer. And as was foretold in the very first episode, it's time to test the Metal of Man. Indie season and series finale, unsurprisingly called The Metal of Man. Premiere date, April 29th, 2018, written and directed, again, by Rick Jacobson. It opens with Ash and the group running from Kandar, grabbing the dagger and Kelly's body out of the car and making a beeline for the hardware store to resurrect her. But Kandar's in their path, a massive yet somehow gaunt and skeletal creature with gnarled limbs and spikes and a warped and twisted spine. The townsfolk tell Ash to go out and get to killing it, but as he puts it, Yes, I do kill demons, but that that thing is bullshit, man! He's finally met something beyond his capabilities, and he's as scared as the rest of us. Really, he always has been. He's never been a hero. He's just some guy put into a terrible situation and doing the best he can. With no hope of defeating Kandar, he retreats back to his family home. The townsfolk become deadites and tear each other apart as the title card drops. When we come back in, Pablo turns on the TV and discovers that the epidemic of demon possession has become global. Kandar's influence extends worldwide, and Ash just doesn't know what to do about it. He's just some guy from Elk Grove, Michigan, which, judging by where he points to on his own hand, is somewhere near Houghton Lake, Michigan residents are uniquely equipped to use their hands as an impromptu map of the state, and he never asked for any of this, as Ash points out in an outburst he more or less plays entirely straight. It's a nice little bit of drama to counterpoint the previous 29 episode's comedic atmosphere, and a reminder that actually being Ash would be a constant living nightmare. But Brandy won't let him succumb to self-pity. She tells him that she's had her entire world completely rewritten over the last few days, and the one thing she's learned is that her father can do anything he puts his mind to. Ash tokes up a little to take the edge off his anxiety, and starts his plan to save the world by bringing back Kelly. Since Pablo can't be seen by the Deadites due to his brujo status, he can bring the body back to the hardware store, and Brandy and Ash can make it there by going through the sewers. Ash wants Brandy to leave town and find somewhere safe, but she refuses in a scene that's honestly played very heartfelt and touching. Back when I covered Shaun of the Dead, I said that every great comedy has a moment where it lets down its defenses and gets real, and this episode is that moment for this series. Pablo sees the military strafing Kandar as he returns to the hardware store, but he realizes that not only do mortal weapons fail to harm it, but the naked aggression directed against it only makes it stronger. Ash and Brandy meanwhile traverse the sewers, and Ash gives Brandy Linda's old necklace from the very first Evil Dead movie in a sweet moment, just before they run into a whole horde of deadites. Without his chainsaw, he's definitely more vulnerable than he's ever been, and it's a genuinely tense and harrowing sequence as they chase the duo into a narrow tunnel before Ash can finally seal it off. Pablo goes into the open rift, using his brujo powers to protect him while he retrieves Kelly. Ash and Brandy fend off a group of deadites that made their way inside, and you can definitely get a feel for how the two would have functioned as a team in the next season if they ever got one. They're really beginning to cohere as a family, which makes the ending that much more bittersweet. Um, spoilers. Pablo returns, sealing the rift in the process, but it looks like he failed to resurrect Kelly. Until she comes back, gasping for breath and looking like, in her words, Keith Richards. She and Pablo share a kiss anyway, and the ghost beaters are reunited one final time to take on evil. Which is good, because the military is outside with rifles and bazookas and a whole goddamn tank, and they're not doing jack shit to stop the 60-foot-high demon rampaging through downtown Elk Grove. The soldiers evacuate what's left of the civilian populace, taking heavy casualties in the process as their members become possessed, and both Kelly and Pablo show their mettle by assisting with the evacuation. But when they all get into the transport, Ash closes and locks the door, leaving them all behind. He's finally accepted his destiny. He's ready to become the Chosen One. And as much as it pains him to leave his daughter behind, at least he knows she's going to be safe with the friends he made along the way. They drive off, and Ash heads to the tank with his Kandarian dagger for his final confrontation. He learns how to steer it with a remarkable haste, and modifies a sabot round by duct-taping the Kandarian dagger onto the front of it in what feels like the perfect culmination of that particular motif. He drives down the street, heading for Kandar, but the round fails to fire, and the monster lifts him high in the air, preparing to devour him. Only a last-second emergency override launches the dagger straight through Kandar's head and into its chest, and although it dies, ash is dropped 30 feet or so straight to the ground just before the massive demon collapses on top of him. Even that's a little much to imagine our hero surviving unscathed. But he is found, by someone wearing a ring with the insignia of the Knights of Sumeria, and he's put into cryostasis in an underground bunker until his wounds can be healed. We don't know how long that is, but when Ash wakes up, he has an advanced cyborg hand that perfectly resembles his old one, albeit with a thin band of translucent material at the join between robotic and human components. And that's not the only sign that he's emerged far, far in the future. A knight of Sumeria named Lex comes to greet him, played by Jessica Green, and obviously a cyborg herself as evidenced by the similar band of translucent material around her waist and she tells him that the Dark Ones are once again on the move and the Chosen One is needed. She leads him to the exit to the bunker, which looks out on a literally post-apocalyptic wasteland, and promises him that there's still something worth fighting for. Ash dons a new outfit with a fur-lined leather jacket that makes him look like Wolverine, and the two of them climb into a new and fully Mad Maxed version of the Delta, with Hail to the King spray-painted across the ramming prow on its front. Lexi takes the machine gun turret, Ash drives, and when she asks him how he feels, all he can say is... Groovy. And that's it. That's the end of the season, the end of the series, and probably the end of Bruce Campbell's tenure as Ashley J. Williams. He's made a formal retirement announcement, and although he since walked that back a little by hinting that he'd be willing to return for an animated season 4 or a movie directed by his old buddy Sam, that is currently the last appearance of the character in continuity. Stars chose not to renew the show for a season 4, both because the ratings suffered badly due to the delay in release, and because honestly more people were watching it on Netflix than on their own network. And Netflix has an entire business model devoted to never producing more than two seasons of a new TV show unless it's called Stranger Things. So that's all the ash we're going to get. It's an appropriate way to go out. I love the idea that there's a never-ending battle against evil and he is finally ready to be part of it. And I also love that it parallels Phantasm Ravager's ending, another franchise that was started by a bunch of guys doing small independent movies, forging friendships, and learning as they went. Even so, despite 30 half-hour episodes and equivalent runtime to 10 more movies in the series, I'm surprised to say I still want more. I fell in love with this show. I fell in love with the characters. I want to know what happened to Ruby and Brandy and Kelly and Pablo and how they reunite with Ash in the post-apocalyptic future. I have questions I want answered. I have honest-to-God enthusiasm for this story and where it would have gone, and I'll miss not getting a chance to find out unless the animated series actually happens, which, hey, we've thought this franchise was dead before. All of which does a great job of answering the question, will I hang on to this DVD set? I genuinely feel like Season 3 got stronger as it went along and stuck the landing better than its predecessors, and I can easily see myself popping this one in as a fun way to pass the time while I'm playing video games or folding laundry. It's comfort food for the soul, which is a weird way to describe a show where a guy shoves a shotgun in a zombie's mouth and tells him, didn't your mama ever tell you not to talk with your mouth full? And I certainly wouldn't want to trust my ability to watch it to the whims of streaming media. This one is mine. I own it. And I'm so happy to be able to say that. And if you want to talk about a potential season four, the touching moments between Brandy and her dad, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter as at and on Tumblr, Blue Sky and Letterboxd does Half Price Horror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, we are officially coming into spooky season, ladies and gents and non-binary friends, and that means big-time classics on Half Price Horror. And they don't get much bigger than our next star. He's 168 feet tall, he's pissed off and radioactive, and he's ready to give Japan a very hard time. Let's give it up for the one, the only, the 1954 original, Godzilla. See you then.